Thank you for not putting me on a greyhound <laughs> to bring me here. Uh, I'm, uh, it's, it's been good to get to meet some of you, and so I'm, I'm wanting, as we're having breaks and even lunch, I, I'd love to talk more with you, um, so feel free to come find me. Um, Connor asked me about contact information, and I realized there's, there's a, a couple, there's uh, a Mathena Center information that Brian handed out and some stuff at the table, but I don't think either, any of those have my email on it, so if you would like my email, can I just tell you what it is real fast, if you want to write it down, that'll be the easiest way. Uh, Brian at practicalshepherding.com. That's probably the best one to give you. We don't have it up there, sorry. But B-R-I-A-N at practicalshepherding.com. That is the best way to reach me. And part of the ministry we do that has really that has expanded, that we have a system even in trying to, to be able to respond at least to everyone, is people will write in with some of the craziest ministry questions you can ever imagine from all over the world. It's just amazing. Um, and I, I almost weekly hear from somebody in a, in a country in Africa asking questions. I mean, it's just, and uh, yeah, a lot of times we have no idea how to respond to that. But we want to just say, hey, we love you. We're going to pray for you as you deal with that, you know. Um, but if there's any way I can serve you, uh, we we all we have try to we're trying to create a system, even as the ministry continues to expand, to for at least somebody to respond to everyone who tries to contact us. So if you annoy me, I'll just send you to somebody else. No, but anyways, we try to do that. Just feel free to write me, and I'll be glad to help if I can. Or I may send you to somebody who I think might be able to help you more, and we try to facilitate that. So anyways, pra- Brian at practicalshepherding.com is the best way to to reach me. Um, I mentioned just a bit of, I want to mention a bit of my story, and I can't go into the details, but I want to just kind of begin by sharing a little bit of the background of my church story, because it's really uh, relevant to this topic of, of church leaders and how to find them, who are they, how to raise them up in our church. So, 14 years ago, I went to a church that was like I said, about 30 elderly members. Uh, it had been in decline for over 30 years. And it was on its last leg. Financial shambles. It was a pretty classic dead-dying Southern Baptist church. It had this big, old, beautiful, historic building in the middle of this community you couldn't buy real estate for. And, but the building was falling apart, and these older folks had remained there just trying to keep it, keep it going. Since 1972... The longest stay of any pastor was four years. It was mostly 18 to 24 months. So this church had a history of running pastors out every couple of years for 35 years until I got there. The guy I followed was a seminary student. He was there a whopping 18 months. And I got there and I was told it was going to be a rough situation. And... There were three different movements going to be fired in the first five years, as I mentioned earlier. The first one came in just three months in. So I didn't have much of a, whatever a honeymoon is, that first year thing, I didn't have that. And it was one of my, it was a, a music guy that I had inherited who had boasted of getting rid of the previous pastor and so wanted to do the same with me. And I had gone in, and I'd been taught to preach the Word, love the people, don't change anything, try to win the staff you have, 
So I went in to try to do that. And a couple months in, we actually had a few folks coming to just check things out. I think just a new pastor in town or whatever. And I look up. I remember on a few Sundays, I looked up and saw this music guy who was talking to the visitors. And I thought to myself, oh, he's coming around. He's going to meet folks that are new, and that's great. And several weeks of that happened, and then finally one of those visitors came to me and said, I think you should know this, that your music guy came to me and said, hey, this new pastor is crazy. You do not want to come here. I suggest you never come back to this church ever again. Now, I'm no church growth expert, (laughs) but that's not a good way to grow the church. And so naturally, we had to confront this guy about this, and he did not handle it well, and he declared war on me. Um... And in a Southern Baptist church, it's congregational, so it's a matter, can you, can you pull the church, enough of the church together to vote you out, is the, is the plan of attack in an unhealthy, dysfunctional setting like that in a congregational church. And he was able to, um, he was threatening and all these things, a longer story I can't get into, but I, I found some leverage against him, that I was able to go to him and say, resign and I will let you leave peacefully. And he did. And it was a whole other battle that took place. But he did, and he left. And there was a seminary student that had come a month before that just to kind of just check it out and liked some of the people and heard about what I was wanting to see happen in the church. And he was just kind of there visiting. And he was very musically gifted. By the way, the music guy I inherited was tone deaf. So he actually had no musical abilities but was my music guy. I know. Can I make that up? I mean, I'm a music person, so I can safely say that. I would say it was five years, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I was 28, 29. He was probably in his mid-20s. And um, so he left quietly, and the guy who had come in, who was musically gifted, theologically sound, just come into school, he stepped into his role. He became a member and stepped in and, w- and served as our part-time music guy for four years and was a huge blessing to the church. And he had the same first and last name of the previous guy. So I was intrigued that God was up to something. <laughs> that was three months. That was my first three months. Uh, stayed out of trouble the rest of the year pretty much because the church numerically grew for the first time in 20 years. And I'll never forget a conversation with one of my deacons who's in his 80s. And he asked me actually how I wanted to bring members in. And I said, well, since you're asking, here's what I'd like to do. You know, I'd, I'd like to have a process, and I'd actually like to, you know, have, have to then go through an interview, and then the church votes on it. And he says, we've had five people join the church in 10 years, and you want to make it harder to become a member. I said, yes, that's what I want to do. And um, in the, within the first year, the church had brought in more members in the first year than it had the previous 20, which was not an astounding number, but just that stat. It was like 10 people, you know, but... <laughs> The stats, I'm not a numbers guy, but the stats sounds good to me when you say it like that. And you, get to th- and you get to throw that in an 85-year-old deacon who has no explanation on what just happened. So, stayed out of trouble the first year or so after that. At two and a half years, at a deacon's meeting, and for those who don't know, in a Southern Baptist context, the typical setup is a sing- single senior pastor and deacons who usually function as pseudo-elders and have all the authority in the church. So I would meet with the deacons, and I just brought up the idea of we have like 40 or 50 people who are attending and like 800 people on the membership roll. 
So as somebody who takes Hebrews 13, 17 seriously, as you just heard I did, I said to them, what, you know, just where are all these people? And just by bringing it up, I got threats from the deacons. One deacon uh, pointed his finger at me and, and said, uh, Pastor, your honeymoon's over. And he declared war on me at that moment. And uh, two months later, I was in, in Minnesota on vacation where my wife's family's from. And I can remember where I'm standing in a field and because the only place I get a cell signal. And my associate who had come to the church with me to just come serve and help me had just come out of the deacons meeting and he just came out of a meeting where the deacons had planned a way to get me fired while I was gone and asked my associate, who was my friend, that if he helped them do it, when they fired me, they'd make him the pastor. He was a 40-year-old man, had a high school diploma, no college, no seminary, no nothing, just self-taught in the Word, felt a call in the ministry, um, no experience. And one of the things he's wrestling with, is any church ever going to hire me with that kind of, no experience, no education? And he got that dangled in front of him, and he said no. And he turned around and called me after that. And I had the trust in that man grew, up, grew immensely after that in our relationship. And that was year two and a half that they would have probably been able to at least pull it to a vote while I was gone if he had not pushed back. So I didn't go on vacation a whole lot after that. <laughs> and it's so funny because I'm in my 15th year and I'm still trying to burn vacation I built up in those early years because I stopped going anywhere because of what happened. And so I'm still trying to burn through that. It's quite interesting now. Um, and, but the biggest, the, the worst one came at year five. And what had happened over five years is, four or five years, the church had slowly grown with people who wanted to come to a church and help see the, ch- the church change into the vision that I had for it. And other folks died slowly. And all of a sudden, in a, in a congregational Southern Baptist church, the majority had shifted. And the regime that held a stranglehold on the church for all those decades didn't know it until it had already happened. And that's when they panicked. And in year five, they went after me like never before. And I was in the process of trying to change our leadership structure to a plurality of pastors, elders, and deacons to play more of a service role and not, and not have that authority of the pseudo-elders. And that's what they made the issue over. And it blew up in the church. But that was not the issue. As I look back, the issue was about authority. The issue was about who now is in charge. And it came to a point where the church was about to, was going to split on this vote. And I had the numbers, and I called the ringleader in. Well, actually, the, the, the lowest moment was a beloved church member died, and in, during the visitation of the funeral visitation, this group called a meeting in the kitchen of the funeral home, you know, where like the family's supposed to be able to go to rest and relax and get away from the visitation for a little bit. They called a meeting back there, and the meeting was to go find all the people who are on the membership rolls who don't come to the church anymore to come in for this vote and vote me out or actually vote down my leadership structure change at this business meeting coming, and then after they vote that down, to turn around and vote me out as pastor. And I met with the ringleader the night before, and I shared with him, or I I said to him, I have the votes, I have the numbers for this vote, and you know I do. 
but I'm going to pull this off the table because we're going to split the church and destroy it if we do this. And I said, if I do this, will you back off? And he said, yes. And he actually seemed a little grateful about it. And I was, I felt like a big failure. Spent four or five years at that point trying to move this church in this direction. And, um, and the, tr- the business meeting came, drew a big crowd for some strange reason. And it came and went, no vote. And, um, but the damage had been done. 20% of the congregation left. Um, some people who had become friends and supporters of me who had been poisoned by this other group um, left. And when the smoke cleared, I almost left at five years. And I stayed for two reasons. One, kind of morbid curiosity. Like, what was going to come next after all that, after five years? I stayed for morbid curiosity. I have to say that's a part of it. The other part of it was Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Uh, I was haunted by that verse. And that's the best word for it. I wasn't compelled by it or motivated. I was haunted by it. And God taught me one of the most important lessons I ever learned in ministry that, that moment. He's, he taught me that, that I will answer for every soul under my care, and that includes the people who don't like me very much. So I stayed, and some of them stayed actually. And some of them stayed and have continued to stay. And God did this in the next five years. He did this amazing redeeming work in my life and some of these people's lives. To where the ringleader I met with who was running all this at year five, on Sunday greeted me with a smile and a hug. He's still there. He's a big supporter. um, Publicly shares of his love for me. And so God redeemed some of these hostile relationships. Uh, and now it's, I can't imagine being anywhere else because of what God took me through in those five years. So I, I share just th- that bit of the story for, for each of you just to hear that if you're in these tough years in the beginning, it takes a minimum of five years, I'm convinced, to make any lasting change in your church that will last when you're gone. And so when the average stay of a pastor is every two to three years, we have a problem, don't we? If, that, if that's true, if what I said is true, we don't stay long enough to see whether the fruit's going to come or not. And I almost left, and I stayed and learned a lot of valuable lessons um, from staying. And one of those lessons, <clears throat> some of those lessons revolved around leadership. And so as, as I tell that story, all three of those attempted firings that I, that I was able to survive, all three of them revolved around broken, dysfunctional leadership authority issues that existed in the church. So the first one was a staff member. It was about authority. He wanted to be the, he wanted to be the pastor. He wanted to be an elder. And so he tried to remove me out of that. The second and third firings were deacons who were pseudo-elders, and who wanted to be elders and did not submit to what the things that I was wanting to try to push in the, in the vision of that. And in a typical SBC church, that is what is so common. And you maybe experienced this. What happens is the deacons get the bum rap. <clears throat> the deacons get accused of you know, being power hungry and they take the power and senior pastor comes in and tries to deal with it. That happens some. I'll give you that. But you know what I've found is more common is 
if pastors come and go for 30 years, every two to three years, the power's got to go somewhere. It is unsafe for that church to leave it in that pastor's hands. Deacons take it, not because they want to, but because somebody's got it in a leadership vacuum. So as I tell my story, I just want you to see how much so many of those issues revolved around leadership issues. And hopefully you resonate with some of those things in your own church as I'm talking about these things. So there's two questions I want to tackle for our time around this. And by the way, I I know that's a snippet of my story. Uh, The revitalization book that's in the back tells the full narrative of the first 10 years. So if you're interested in that, what happened those first five years? And then when the ship turned, all that God did in those next five years to totally change the church and turn it around. Um, Two questions that I want to address. Number one is, what are elders and deacons? I think these are the two questions we have to address in dealing with leadership things. And I want to be careful. We don't even use the term elder. We use the term pastor in our church because we're in the Southern Baptist Church. And when I was going through that time and trying to make the leadership change, I had older folks especially who didn't understand what an elder was. And I, went, I remember went to this 90-year-old widow and, and, and talking to her about it, like trying to, sh- I'm a history buff, trying to show her in a history book, you know, look, Baptists did this, you know, over 100 years ago. And I'll never forget, she looked at me and she said, she said, honey, I'm 90, don't tell me about history. <laughs> and my response, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and I didn't ever bring it up again. So we can, use, we can use the term elder now. It's long gone, but I still say pastor at our church. So just to be clear, the functionality of that office is pastor-elder. So don't get caught up in the terminology. And I would encourage you to be sensitive to what your congregation knows terminology-wise to help them understand who the shepherds are. And Southern Baptists know what a pastor is as a shepherd. So what are elders and deacons? Both of those have to be addressed. And the second question is, How do you find them? How do you find them in your church? So that's what I want to address. The Bible gives, the New Testament is crystal clear. There are two offices in the New Testament, and two only. Pastors and deacons. Two offices, pastors and deacons. Most churches have something that shows a pastors and deacons in some kind of role. Maybe not a plurality in the pastor, which was us. You know what's funny is I, I, did a, I, I did a conference call with a church leaders last week from a, a church in uh, Nebraska that contacted me. And there's an there's a, there's a elder sitting around this table on this conference call with me, but they're talking me through they've existed for 60 years and don't have deacons. And they're trying to bring deacons in. I thought to myself, really? I guess there's churches like that too. I mean, I've seen it before, but... So there are churches that don't even have deacons for some reason, as well as churches that don't have a plurality of of pastors. But most churches have the representation of those two offices in some way or another. So turn to 1 Timothy, chapter 3. And by the way, the three passages, the three passages that you should know incredibly well that set the paradigm of what pastoral ministry should look like are the two we looked at in the first session, 1 Peter 5, Hebrews 13, 17, and this one, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're not going to read this, but hopefully you're familiar with it. 
verses 1 through 13, outlines the character and the qualifications of a pastor and a deacon. And it shows the distinction of the two offices. So look at verse 1. The work of an overseer, that's a pastor, an elder, overseer, another term. It's a fine work if he desires to do it. And then look down at verse 13. A deacon obtains for himself a high standing and confidence in the faith in Christ Jesus. And then sandwiched in between those verses is this list of qualifications for the pastor and a deacon. Very similar in a lot of ways, and we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. But I want you to see that to define elders and deacons, the best way I've found this, I learned this in my own church, all these churches I've worked with, and for you to evaluate as you're trying to think through pastors and deacons in your own church, is to look at how they're similar, and then to look at how they're different. We first need to see how they're similar, but the thing that I think most people are confused on is what is the difference between a pastor and a deacon, an elder and a deacon. And you have to distinguish that. The New Testament speaks to it. And what I found in my own church situation that caused a lot of the blow up in the first five years was the functionality and the role of a pastor and a deacon was very undefined. And when it was, it was unbiblical. In Southern Baptist circles, the senior pastor is kind of this hired hand preacher who doesn't have any authority or very little. And the deacons function as pseudo-elders, not as servants. So, I want to give you five qualifications, the five categories. I've taken verses 1 through 13 and I brought them into five categories. I just want to give you the similarities. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want you to at least see them because many of these qualifications go together. Number one is a blameless reputation. Blameless reputation. Pastors and deacons are called to have a blameless reputation. They're to be above reproach, it says. Look down at verse 2 there. And then verse 10 for the deacon. You have to not be addicted to wine in verse 3 and 8 for both pastor and a deacon. And the, third, and the pastors have a good reputation in the church, verse 7. So there's this call to have a blameless reputation. That doesn't mean they don't do anything wrong. But it, you're above accusation. So that's a similar qualification for both pastors and deacons. That's the first one. A second one is manager of home. Both pastors and deacons should are to be able to manage their own home faithfully. Verse 2, verse, verse two and 12, you have... They're to care for their wives faithfully, to care for their children in verse 4 and verse 12. And even verse 5 tells you why a pastor has to care for his family first. Because if he can't manage his own household, how's he going to take care of the church of God? Which, by the way, shows us caring for your family first is a prerequisite to qualify you to be a pastor. Just so you know. That's what verse 5 is saying. So manager of home, a pastor and a deacon, both are, are supposed to do that. Here's a third one. Godly character. Look down at verse 2. Temperate, prudent, respectable, gentle, not contentious. Deacons to be a man of dignity, not double-tongued from verse 8. So there's an aspect of godly character that both pastors and deacons are supposed to have. Fourth thing, spiritual maturity. Pastors and deacons are to have spiritual maturity. Verse 3. Free from the love of money, verse 8, for a deacon. 
Pastors aren't supposed to be a new convert. Look at verse 6. So there's a spiritual maturity that both pastors and deacons are supposed to have. Here's the fifth one. These are all similarities, and that's plurality. Plurality. Uh, I assume most would affirm that, but I don't want to assume that. I mean, I want to say that everybody would be that in that camp, so let me make that argument. It's not explicit here in 1 Timothy, because this is talking about one pastor and one deacon. Virtually in every pl- other place in the New Testament, it talks about pastors and deacons, elders and deacons, in the plural. More than one. So you've got Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Yeah, 1 Peter 5 even mentions elders. Paul writes, he greets, starts his, a lot of his letters greeting the pastors and the deacons. So I think there is clear biblical evidence in the New Testament that there's to be a plurality of both deacons and pastors. Now for those of you who are, Southern Baptist, are in Southern Baptist churches and they're pretty diehard about that single pastor model and, but, but many deacons, and you try to figure out how to make that transition, here's how I've, I've found is a helpful way to communicate it. Say, why don't we just have one deacon? What's their response going to be? Oh, it's too much work to be done. Exactly. We need more than one pastor. There's too much work to be done. And if you're doing your part and you're doing your part, we have two different roles. So it's an opportunity to distinguish the roles and also to acknowledge God's design that you should be more than one in a local church. But here's a, here's a second part of it that's not as much of a, a biblical one, but just of a wisdom. There needs to be a plurality of pastors and deacons because the burden, especially for pastors, if the call is to care for souls on behalf of the chief shepherd, it's too great a burden for one man to carry. And I have yet to find many men who could ever try to carry that burden and do it well by themselves. So I think there's a, an argument of wisdom in that also. Okay, so there's a, just five similarities. just want to give you, to those, you those briefly because I want to ho- highlight the distinctions. Then this is the part that I think it's really confusing. And if you're looking for a way to communicate to pastors and deacons or to the church on why you need pastors and deacons, this is what you need to give them. There's three distinctions I want to highlight. First one is teaching versus well-taught. Teaching versus well-taught. Look at 1 Timothy 3. Look at verse 2. This is one of the only places that is different in the list from a pastor and a deacon. Interesting enough. A pastor has to be able to teach. Most of us know that distinction's there. A pastor has to be able to teach. Pastors to guard the gospel, the good deposit that, that Paul gives, mentions to Timothy. If you have a deacon that teaches Sunday school and is able to teach, praise God for that. That's okay. That's a good thing. But that is not a requirement for that person to be a deacon. But to be able to teach is a requirement to be a pastor or an elder. And we can talk about what that looks like, but there's got to be a gift an ability to teach that a deacon does not have to have. But a deacon has to be well taught. And we see that actually in 1 Timothy 3 also. That he holds fast to the teachings. And we see that in Titus. We see that in 1 Timothy 3. So they're to be spiritually mature. They're to know the Word. They're to be able to work through that. 
but it is not a requirement. That's one distinction. Here's a second distinction between pastors and deacons. Oversight versus service. Oversight versus service. Look at verse 1. What is another name for a pastor and elder? Overseer. And 1 Peter 5 says, he says, shepherd the flock. And what does he say next? Exercising oversight. A pastor exercises oversight. That's how he shepherds the flock. The New Testament doesn't tell us everything. But man, let's not ignore the clear things it does tell us about what we're supposed to do and what church leadership should look like in the church. So oversight versus service. A deacon's primary role is one of service. That's the nature of the word that's used. Deacons are to serve. That doesn't mean that deacons don't oversee certain ministries. And certainly, hopefully, it doesn't mean that pastors don't serve, right? We're talking about the distinction of role, though. Deacons are to lead in the service of the church, and the pastors are to shepherd souls by exercising oversight. And I tell you what, if you've ever seen this, it is a beautiful thing to see. Pastors shepherd and bear that burden and exercise oversight. And they go to their deacons and they say, deacons, can you lead and handle, take this? And they run with it. And godly spiritual deacons run with it and serve in those ways. And those pastors either help serve in that and continue to oversight. It's a beautiful model that God's design is. So oversight versus service. But here's the key, and this is important in Southern Baptist life, probably for you too, if you've had issues around this. The deacons lead in service but it is under submission of the pastors. And in congregational churches, the congregation too. Oversight versus service. Here's a third distinction. Shepherding versus practical doing. Shepherding versus practical doing. So again, 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock on behalf of the chief shepherd. That's the role. And if you look at most of the qualifications, even of 1 Timothy 3, they revolve around the ability to be able to shepherd people well. Don't look at 1 Timothy 3 and think, boy, God just wants pastors to be nice for some reason. Gentle and kind and prudent and temperate. No, that's what helps us shepherd people well. Do you realize that? Angry, defensive, quick-tempered usually does not make people be drawn to us. So these qualifications matter because the role is shepherding for the pastor. Deacons, because they're to serve, is practical doing, is the, is the way I like to, to refer to it. And there's times where deacons are going to shepherd people through that. There's times pastors are going to practically do things. But again, we're talking about the distinction of the of the role that is to define them. So one of the examples I give is, if I have a deacon that goes to fix one of our widow's uh, plumbing issue, I'm grateful he's got this skill to go and do that. You do not want me fixing your plumbing, I assure you. But he knows how to go do that. And he goes and fixes the plumbing. 
But he also better ask her how she's doing and pray for her before he goes. On the flip side, I may go visit a widow to care for her and see how she's doing spiritually. And I spend, you know, 45 minutes talking about her life and how she's struggling and, and read Scripture and pray with her and do some counseling. And, bef- and I do this almost with every widow I go see. Before I leave, I say, is there anything you need me to do for you? Like, is there anything you need me to just carry for you that you can't or move something for you? So this, is not, this doesn't mean at all that we don't you know, move over into some of those different areas, but it's talking about the distinction of the role. Okay, So shepherding versus practical doing. So that, that defines the, the role of elders and deacons. We have to know the similarities, but you, the key is, I've learned, you have to know the distinctions. And the distinctions is what you need to teach your church and help them understand. Because then that sets the expectations they have on pastors and deacons. And I'm convinced that's how you shift from a, to a, a more biblical model like that, regardless on where you're coming from. Okay, let me turn to the second question. How do I, how do I find elders and deacons? So if, if these are the similarities, if the Bible gives us clear evidence on how we find them, we should be able to find them, right? Hopefully they're there. How do we find elders and deacons? Well, I want to give you, I'm going to give you five ways to raise up biblically qualified elders and deacons, and I want to add this to it, in a way that hopefully won't get you fired. How's that? Okay? That's what I'm going to give you. Five ways. Raise up biblically qualified pastors and deacons, but what I'm going to tell you is hopefully in a way that won't get you fired in the process. And we're laughing because we know guys who have been fired over those reasons, or maybe you have been. Actually, if you have been, you're probably not one of the ones laughing. But it is a real thing. These leadership issues implode a lot of churches. Okay, so five ways. Number one, work with what you have. Work with what you have. Had a young seminarian come to me six months into my pastorate at Auburndale. And come to me, he didn't like something the deacons were doing. And, and the, it was a cultural issue with the deacons. And he came and suggested we needed to discipline them all. And I repeated back to him his suggestion to me. I said, I've been here six months, and you want me to discipline them over something that they think is noble and good, and do it in a church that's never done any discipline in its history. And so I just want you to know, I didn't take his advice. And he uh, slowly came around to understand that. But it just shows the teachability of this brother, because four years later, he became one of three men that became our first elders. So he grew in that time to understand what his role is and, and it's in a lot of ways. As I mentioned, the, the man who was the ringleader who tried to get me fired in that last firing that, that almost imploded the church is still at the church. He's still a deacon. And he serves faithfully like a deacon's supposed to. I, it, is, it is amazing to me. I, I'm, I'm always gripped by it in two ways. One, when he comes and greets me in love every week. It's one of my favorite moments on Sunday, by the way. And the second thing is when he calls me and say, uh, we, need to, we need to fix this at the church. And this is what's going on. You know, and he calls me and asks my permission. When he doesn't have to even ask my permission. And at a time, it was, a, it was just the total opposite of that. Work with what you have. 
They may not be where you want them to be now. That doesn't mean that's not where they're going to be later. I think the temptation is so many pastors go in and want to just clean house and start over when it comes to leadership. And let's be honest, planners in the room, church planners, let's be honest. Isn't that one of the reasons you thought you wanted to plant? Because you could like start over and put everybody in place, you know, just like you want them at the very beginning, right? You're laughing because two years in, some of you are regretting that decision that you brought that guy in. Work with what you have. That's the first thing to do. God may have those in your midst who are going to be some of your finest elders and deacons. They just need someone to mentor them and teach them to get them there. So work with what you have. Number two, teach on the distinctions between pastors and deacons. I'm not going to go into that again, but that that fits into this. This is so important. It's really important if you don't want to get fired as you're trying to make leadership changes. Teach on the distinctions. And I'm saying do it for years, not months. Do it for years. So teach on the distinctions between the offices. And just so you know, in this kind of, you know, in the new Young Restless Reform movement in the last 15 years, guys are getting really caught up and want to use the term elder. Like, I don't give a rip, just in case you haven't noticed. Like, pastor, I mean, call him bishop if you want. I don't care. Don't do that. That'd be more confusing, I think. But, you know, I just, I, I just said, I want the functionality of the office. I need shepherds who are called by God and understand what that means. I don't really call what you call, care what you call them. So teach on the distinctions of the two offices. Number three, pray and wait for God to raise up leaders. Pray and wait. Don't have elders and deacons like you want that are qualified. Pray and wait for God to raise them up. I watch, guys, I mean, again, I'm so grateful for this recovery of biblical preaching in the church. I'm, I'm thrilled by it. I think God is doing a marvelous work in churches through that. But what I'm watching is, guys, so in my context, guys graduating from Southern Seminary, you don't leave that seminary without having a high commitment into preaching. You just don't. If you did, you didn't listen very well. And they go out and they wave this banner of the Word of God builds the church. The Word will build the church. And they go and they preach and they preach. And six months in, they're so frustrated with the little things they have found in the church that are so annoying to them that they want to change. And they come to me and they are so frustrated and don't know what to do. And they're beside themselves. They're so bothered by all these dysfunctions and unhealthy things they find in the church. And what I have concluded is, and I I try to find a kind way to press them on this. I say, what's the most important thing that needed to change in your church when you got there? And if they don't know the answer, I tell them, it's what comes from the pulpit every week, which actually changed the day each one of you became a pastor at your church. That's the most important thing that needs to change in that church. That's where God's going to breathe life into the church. I believe that. A lot of guys say they believe that. But if you're six months in and you think you have to change all these other things because they annoy you so much, I want to challenge you. You actually don't have a commitment to biblical preaching and what God can really do in it as much as you say you do. Because sometimes we just have to live with what we don't like because we have to give time for God. That parable of Mark 4 is there for a reason. The seed is sown, but what? It it takes time. It's got to find soil where it roots into the ground and it grows up and it bears fruit eventually. 
That's purposeful. How does, it doesn't make sense that this would be God's design, that we wouldn't go in and preach three months in our first pastor and revival breaks out. Maybe we've got to do some long, hard work. And God wants to mature us in the process and trust Him. Many do not just preach and pray and wait, which is what we should be doing in our opening years. I think the same is true for leadership. We say God will raise up leaders in His time. We, we know God can do it. And then we get impatient because we want them now. And you may come here really impatient about that. Or maybe you've been waiting a few years and you think you should have them by now and you really are frustrated and discouraged that you don't have the leaders that you want. And I want to encourage you that to, to pray and wait for God to raise up leaders. Patience and prayer and believing them both is what will keep you sane in these years where you're longing for leaders you don't have. And you may have to slug away at your, your church alone for a little while. And that may be part of the calling. And I had to do that, but when you get leaders that come, you appreciate them on a whole other level when you had to do it by yourself for a while. So pray and wait for God to raise up leaders. And just so you know, God knows you need leaders more than you do. So if He hasn't sent them yet, He has plans, good plans and reasons and purposes. And you having to slug it out for now. And just keep praying and waiting. Number four, look for pastors who may already exist. So here's the best advice I ever got about, about finding leaders in the church, particularly elders, but this applies to deacons too. Uh, I, I heard it from Mark Dever, but it was like 20 years ago before he'd written a book on it. And Mark told me, he said, you find your future leaders by looking, future pastors by looking for men who act like pastors, who do the work of a pastor, the people are drawn to them like they're a pastor, but that person does not have a title, pay, or any kind of recognition to do it. Look for those people in your church. Without exception, that is how I have found all my pastors, elders in our church, is those that are already doing the work. People, they're, they're bearing fruit out of that work. People are drawn to them in that way. And they don't have a title. They don't get paid for it. They don't have any kind of recognition. So when our elder-led congregational church, we bring men to be affirmed as pastors to the church, the church goes, oh yeah, that makes sense. Because they've been bearing that fruit already in the church. Look for pastors who may already exist. A shepherd's heart does not magically appear with an MDiv, an $80,000 salary, and the title of senior pastor. In case you haven't known that yet. God gives people shepherds' hearts. God does that. And God develops it and matures it in the church as you actually do ministry in the church. Look for those who would serve in that way. And I would rather have, I would rather take some guy who's loves Jesus and loves His Word and is teachable and is a train wreck in every other way, like give me that guy to mentor him to be an elder. That's the guy I want. That nobody sees, you know, that nobody sees that there actually could be an elder. 
but they have those, that foundation of a love for Jesus, a love for people, a love for His Word. Give me that guy 10 out of 10 times versus the arrogant, unteachable guy who's figured it all out. The more I work with leaders in my church, the more I just work with pastors uh, everywhere I go. I just grow more and more with the value of humility and teachability than I do even gifts and abilities. Give me the one who's rough around the edges, who's got humility and teachability, and I will pour myself into them long before I will the most gifted and the, most, the one has the most ability who's arrogant and unteachable. Last one. Number five, way to raise up qualified elders and deacons without getting fired. Recruit qualified men to serve. Some of you may need to go outside your church to find somebody. And that's okay. The associate pastor I told you about, he was our Sunday school teacher at the previous church. Drove a truck for a living. Again, no seminary, no college, no ministry experience outside just volunteering in his church. But I saw God had gifted him. And we brought him with us. And it worked out good. He needed ministry experience and had a pretty good idea what mess I was walking into. And apparently I needed like a 6'5", 300-pound guy to come work with me in this church. So it worked out pretty good. By the way, he went and past, he's, he's pastoring in North Carolina. Four years, uh, he stayed with me four years and a church called him, a, a church revitalization in, in uh, North Carolina. And he went down there and he served 10 years in that church, slugging it out. He's a really faithful man. So, it was Mike. And so Mike came with me, and I'm not sure I would have survived without having him there with me and what I dealt with. So this is what's so good about a gathering like this, is talk and build relationships with each other and say, hey, here's my situation. I have nobody. And what, would, what I would do to have somebody to be able to come alongside me and want to do this. And find somebody who wants some ministry experience and is up for an adventure, and you may find your person. So recruit qualified men and women to serve in some kind of capacity. Church planters take teams, don't they? There's some wisdom in that. This church revitalization movement that I'm a part of now that's growing more and more um, because it has to. It's an epidemic now in in our country. Uh, The North American Mission Board is specifically sending teams to go revitalize churches, just like in planting. You may have to slug it out by yourself, but that doesn't mean you have to. And so I would encourage you to make an effort to try to find somebody who would be willing to come and serve and see what might happen and get the experience. You can't promise them a salary and you can't promise even a ministry you know, title, but you could probably promise them there won't be many dull moments. If there's anything about my ch- like it was in my church in the first few years. Okay, so there's the five things. Five ways, and hopefully that you can find pastors and deacons and, and not get fired in the process. Uh, if you have questions around that, we'll, please ask them. We'll, we can deal with them in the, uh, uh, in the Q&A. But I want to urge you, uh, last thing before, before I end, I want to urge you that the New Testament is clear. The offices of pastors and deacons are to be in every local church. 
I'm convinced there's to be more than one. And that this is God's design for Him to let a church, to have a church flourish and bless. And I don't think it's an accident that when these leadership structures are a mess in a church, the church struggles big time. And I don't think it's an accident that when, when a church makes a noble effort to have a biblical structure in leadership, that the church flourishes and that people feel cared for and loved and that the church is able to serve well. I don't think that's an accident. God, there's always blessing in God's design when we pursue it. So I want to encourage you wherever you are to, to do that. So let me pray for you in that way. Let's do that. <clears throat> Lord, thank You for every leader that's represented here and the role they play in their church. Lord, remind them, however big or small that it is, it's important that this is a design that, that Your church is to come together and know their gifts and serve in those gifts and play those roles. Lord, in the midst of what is so confusing in so many churches, would You bring clarity to every person here in their particular church situation that would help them to know how to move forward in a more biblical design. The design You have clearly outlined for us. And Lord, that You would protect those who would move to change that. That You would help the church grow to love Your Word and want to do what it says, even if it's different than what they have always done. And You would give courage to these pastors who are here to lead their churches in that way. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.